It just hit me uh, that last week, or next week, will be my last week as a member of Covenant Life. And I just think uh, just what a sweet time it's been being a part of this faith family. My name is Ronnie Rents, and I've had the honor of serving as a pastor here, and uh, we are super excited to head out in the coming weeks to plant Covenant Hope Church in St. Petersburg, and um, I just hope that we stay connected for years to come, laboring side by side for the gospel in Tampa Bay. And you have been such a blessing to me, uh, so many in this room uh, that I love and will treasure dearly. Even, and we're just across the bridge. Sometimes people act as though we're dying. We're just across the bridge. Like, we're, we're not, it's not St. Petersburg, Russia, okay? You can still see us. Come to the beach. We'll be there, okay? So this year, I was struck by a news article. This article was about a priest who resigned when he found out that all of his baptisms were now invalid. Reading from the article, the Catholic Diocese of Phoenix announced that it determined after careful study that priest Andres had used the wrong wording in baptisms performed up until June 17, 2021. He had been off by a single word. During baptisms in both English and Spanish, Andres used the phrase, we baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And he should have said, I baptize. Proud Protestants may, may crack a smile at this. Some might hear this and be tempted to be confused or laugh. But could, could you imagine this from this perspective of the priest? This, this would be heartbreaking. All of these baptisms were made invalid. And I'm not talking about a few baptisms here. This is from 1995 to 2021. He, to his best recollection, a few thousand baptisms of his were made invalid. This priest must have felt terrible. I thought I was doing right this whole time. Can you imagine calling all those people and telling them you've had a false baptism? And, and although there are some exceptions, many Catholics would view baptism as a necessary prerequisite for salvation. I'm sure some of them were having a crisis of faith, shuddering. What, what have I done? What's, what, I didn't do it right. What's going to happen to me? Continue reading the article. It actually gets worse. As far as the diocese is aware, all of the other sacraments that Andres conferred are valid. But because baptism is the sacrament that grants access to all others, a botched baptism could invalidate any subsequent sacraments, including confirmation, marriage, and holy orders. What this means for you is if your baptism was invalid and you've received other sacraments, you may need to repeat some or all of those sacraments after you're validly baptized as well. Honey, I, I just got off the phone. Turns out all these years, we were never married. All this upheaval over one word. 
And don't get me wrong, words are important. And only God knows the hearts of these people involved. But being put in this situation, I might begin to wonder about the church that I was a part of. I might begin to wonder where this teaching comes from. If one word would cause this man to be in error for years, a decade and a half. Can you just imagine God standing over them in judgment? You didn't get the word right. Your profession of faith, your marriage being made obsolete because of one word being off. This may be a modern-day example in which the ritual and the custom has been elevated to the highest importance. This whole process reeks of a stale, dead, works-based religion in which a strict adherence to the ways of man is more important than the ways of God. We'll see today that Paul is encouraging the Galatians towards their freedom in Christ. But many of them were tempted to return to achieving their own salvation through their works, through their ritual and custom. And we'll see at the core, although they look similar, these are actually two different faiths, two different worldviews, one built on grace and one built on our performance and ability to follow the law. And my hope and prayer for today is that we will see only the way of grace is sufficient. Let's pray. Dear God, we just pray for all of those who will be held up in their chains of sin. For those trying to attain our own salvation, Lord that we would not be seduced by what this world has to offer, that our works would be nothing in comparison to the beauty of Christ, God. Give us eyes to see what you have provided for us. Give us eyes to see that we are free. In your name we pray, amen. Turn with me in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 5. We're going to be in the first six verses. And as you're turning there, last week we closed out chapter 4, and we saw those that were trusting in their own efforts to be made right with God. These were the children of flesh, and they were born into slavery. On the other hand, all who are trusting in Christ are the children of promise. And as children of promise, they are not working to be made right with God, but they were believing and trusting in what God has done by faith. They have a secure inheritance that can never be taken from them. And, and the burden of the law saying, thou shalt, thou shalt, thou shalt, has now been replaced with I will. God accomplishing the salvation of his people, all secured in Christ. And as I referenced early, these aren't just two variations of the same thing. These are entirely different outlooks. These are two religions, each trusting and finding its fulfillment in a different source. Throughout the book of Galatians, Paul has shown his credibility as an apostle. He's given his background 
his information, his, his clear authority in chapters 1 and 2. He's gone on to give theological arguments for justification in chapters 3 and 4, contrasting trusting in the law versus the gospel. And now he changes gears to more practical application of daily life, to daily life, the ethics of living out our daily lives as Christians, how we should live as children of the promise. And so in our text today, we're going to see our points are three deadly consequences of false religion found in verses one through four. And our second point are three life-giving traits of true believers in verses five and six. So we're going to see three deadly consequences of false religion and three life-giving traits of true believers. Verse 1 of chapter 5, if you want to take your eyes there, serves as a fitting end to chapter 4 and as well as the beginning to chapter 5. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. Paul has built up his argument He's built it up to this point. It reaches this, this crescendo. And his conclusion is this. You are children of promise. You have been freed. So be free. Live free. Stand firm in the freedom Christ has won for you. Hearing this in our cultural mindset concerning freedom, we may be tempted to think that this freedom is the freedom to live our best life. Freedom to do whatever we want, however we want. We want our autonomy. We want to be left alone and live life on our own terms. But this idea of freedom is not freedom, and it will never fulfill us. This freedom is a false promise, and as you peel back the layers of the onions, you'll see that this type of freedom is not freedom at all. It's actually bondage to the idol of self. I don't think this is news to anyone, but we are selfish. Our desires, our, our temptation, our, our inclination is to pursue self-satisfaction. And when we talk about freedom, it is important that we always define what we are gaining freedom from. Freedom is not always a virtue. A dad who abandons his wife and kids may claim to have freedom in neglecting his responsibility, but he is not free. He is a slave of his sin and is not only hurting himself, but is significantly harming those whom he should care about the most. Theologian John Stott describes freedom as freedom from my silly little self in order to live responsibly in love for God and for others. Freedom is found as we die to ourselves. As we become smaller and less important, we are free then to live for the ultimate, to find our satisfaction in God, and to love unconditionally just as he does. While we may struggle today with a false idea of freedom, in doing whatever we want. Paul is fighting against a lie on the other end of the spectrum, telling the Galatians that they no longer have to make their own way. They don't have to labor to be made right with God. They are using the law to achieve right standing 
with God by their own efforts. And this is not freedom. Paul is pleading with them. In Christ you have been set free. Your status is secure. Live in this freedom. A precious price has been paid for the freedom that you now possess as children of the promise. And you have not been freed so that things stay the same. Knowing the temptation to revert back to trusting the works of the law, he commands them to stand firm. Stay where you are. The false assurances of work-based religion would quickly creep back in as objects of trust. He exhorts them to stand firm and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. I remember growing up in church, no one, or maybe I wasn't paying attention, but no one ever compl- uh, explained to me what yoke meant. I was just like, why are they talking about eggs all the time? Um, my yoke is over easy and my burn is one. Um, so I, I just, yeah, I want to make sure that you got that the explanation of a yoke is a device used to control a domesticated animal. It's typically made of wood, and it would be put around a cow or an ox's neck, and it would allow the owner to then control the animal, to plow the field, to do the work, to get the job done. And the Judaizers who were promoting the works of the law in addition to Christ, they would refer to the yoke of the law as a privilege. This is a badge that they would wear. They saw the yoke as the essence of true religion, this yoke of the law. It wasn't that they saw the Jewish life as perfection. They were aware they had sins and shortcomings, but they just believed that through the cult, its sacrifices and atonement provided a means of dealing with their sin and failure. And Paul takes that treasured yoke and flips it on its head, making the object of their perceived freedom a yoke of slavery. There may be good things that came from following tenets of the law, but for those who have made it a requirement to reach God, it has become this yoke of slavery. One particular practice that would be appealing to them is to return to that of circumcision. Paul is not opposed to circumcision in all cases, but when it is used as something to gain right access and standing before God, he rightly condemns it. And he grabs their attention in verse 2. He says, look, Listen up, I'm going to level with you here. And he cannot emphasize enough what he's about to say. He says, look, I, Paul, putting the full weight of his apostolic authority, shares, and he shares the first deadly consequence of following a false religion. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. You see, circumcision marked the beginning of a life submitted to the law. The male reproductive organ was associated with life. And the one thing that circumcision symbolized was the possibility of cutting off one's own life and even the lives of their descendants if they failed to uphold the Mosaic Covenant. Some wanted to hold on to this sign and have this sort of hybrid salvation I'll have Jesus, and I'll have my little bit of law, too. But if they accept circumcision, Christ is no advantage to them. This is because Christ cannot be divided. We profit nothing unless he is wholly embraced. 
One commentator says that a supplemented Christ is a supplanted Christ. To add anything to the gospel or to God in their perfection is to serve only to make them worse. I've said this before, but it's like winning a gold medal at the Olympics. And in your joy to commemorate your efforts, you go out and you get it bronzed. Only serving to tarnish and to cover up that precious gold with a lesser metal. You, we are either saved by grace or we are deceived that we can earn our own righteousness by our efforts. We cannot have it both ways. Trusting in human works is incompatible with grace. We see the second consequence of false religion in verse 3. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. Jesus lived the perfect life we can never live. He died for the sins of his people and all who turn from their ways and put their trust in him, their sins are forgiven in this beautiful picture of redemption. Christ's righteousness is accredited to our account so that we can be restored to God. We have been accredited the righteousness of Christ if we are His. It's the great exchange. Christ taking on the sins of humanity on Himself and giving all who put their faith in Him His righteousness so that we stand before God blameless in the righteousness of Christ. But we see in verse 3, in a similar but much less desirable fashion, if you accept circumcision as a means of salvation, then you are under the full debt of the law. Instead of your account being credited the infinite righteousness of Christ, your account is credited with the crushing, burdensome, thousand percent interest debt of the law that can never be repaid in your own efforts. The law is not mere pieces. It is an indivisible whole. As we see in James 2, if we are guilty of one part of the law, like a rock breaking through the window, we are guilty of it all, of breaking it all. In the same way, if we can earn any part of our salvation through ritual, then we are indebted to earn all of it ourselves. We are obligated to keep the whole law in perfection. And turning to verse 4, we see our most severe consequence of ascribing to false religion. You are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. Severed from Christ. <laughs> What a terrible notion to be cut off, to be ineffective, to be removed from Christ. It's no coincidence that Paul uses this pointed language given the subject matter, being severed from Christ when his audience is being, seeking to be justified by the law by severing parts of their body. Sadly, what was intended as a ritual of entry has now become a rite of exit. 
an exit from the grace that God provides. If you would be justified by the law in the final judgment, when you stand before God, Christ will be of no use to you. You are cut off from him. And as a result, you have fallen from grace. You can't have grace in your life when you are cut off from the very source of grace. This is the path of legalism. Striving unsuccessfully to achieve our own righteousness. Paul pleads with the Galatians, stand firm. Do not go back. The consequences are dire. Christ is no longer any benefit from you. You will have to take on the full crushing debt of the law, and you will be severed from Christ. Do not do this. Stand firm in the freedom Christ provides. I don't think many of us will struggle to put our faith in circumcision the way the Galatians did. But as we think about these consequences of deadly false religion, what works might we be putting our faith in today? Maybe we base our standing before God on the frequency of our devotional life. Maybe one day in your past you said a prayer or you raised a hand or you came forward and you committed your life to Christ and suddenly this is snuck in as something that you trust in as you're standing before God. Maybe you trust in being a part of the right church or having really good theology. Trusting this more than the atoning power of Christ. Maybe your parents, maybe they have a faith and you kind of trust in their faith, but it's not quite your own. Maybe you put your trust in the fact that you are not as bad as them by comparison whoever them may be. Keep in mind, it can be easy to look back on the folly of others. But deception is not always easy to see. Many thought they were doing what was right. They were trying to honor God, putting their trust in Christ as well as their works and rituals. They were deceived. And the rationale might be, no, of course I trust in Jesus. Like, you gotta, you got to have Jesus, right? But Jesus is a meal, and maybe my works are just kind of the seasoning, right? A little seasoning on there. Or Jesus is the ice cream, and I just put a little works sprinkles on top. I mean, Jesus is the main deal. This cannot be. And I'm always, I'm always uh, one of the scariest parts of Scripture to me, I think for my whole life, will always be in Matthew 7, verses 21 through 23. Standing in judgment before God, Jesus talks about people that not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. People who were disillusioned, who thought they had served God all of their life, but in reality, God never knew them. And they're holding up their works as though they can meet the standard of God's righteousness. 
I remember being on a long car ride and sharing Christ with some of my family. And they've gone to church the majority of their lives. But I just never really saw much fruit. No matter how I explained the gospel, we kept coming up to the same roadblock. <laughs> they kept reminding me of all the money that they had given to the church. That they used to give. They gave all this money. Lots of it. It was their assurance. It was their defense. It was heartbreaking. That in the light of the gospel of grace, that this would be their justification. Money given like they paid their dues to be right with God. The bad news is, is that no matter what we place our trust in apart from Christ, it will never be sufficient. We will never be good enough. And God's grace and mercy are available solely in Christ, exclusively in Christ. God sent his son to live the life we never could. He died for the sins of the world, taking on the just punishment we deserve. And this is a gift of grace to be received, not a righteousness to be earned. Our righteousness has been earned in the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. But to justify ourselves by our works is to reject this great gift. Works and grace are mutually exclusive paths. And we are going with one and breaking with the other. We talked early about the burdensome yoke of slavery. This is provided by the law, but Jesus says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. What relief there is to be found in Christ for those who are stuck in the hamster wheel of trying to appease God by their works and performance. Jesus says, come to me and I will give you rest. We should note that we are under a yoke either way. Either it is under the crushing yoke of slavery, trying our best to mop up our ocean of our sin in our own power, or it is in him we find our rest as we place our trust in him. He takes off our crushing, heavy, weighted yoke and replaces it with rest for our souls, living in submission to the one who would take on all the compounding debt of our sin and crush it by his righteousness. That burden we are unable to bear, he is able to conquer. He lives perfectly so that we don't have to, and he rose again so that we might have life. Maybe you're here this morning, you're hearing all these different held beliefs, and you, you don't really want any of this. I don't want a yoke around my neck. <laughs> Maybe you don't think you need a savior. Perhaps you think it's that to be free is to rid ourselves of, of theology and dogma and religion. Well, let me tell you that our natural status as humans is to be born with a yoke around our neck. It is our enslavement to sin. 
We are ruled by it. Ruled by it. Look at our lust, our greed, our pride. Every one of us was created to worship, and we all bow down to something. It may be at the altar of our own intellect or or the altar of our self-sufficiency, thinking that our way is best. Friends, you may feel glimpses of freedom, but there is no lasting freedom that is to be found in this place. The basic error of the Judaizers was works righteousness. And this is the same error at the heart of every man-made religious system. But Jesus is different. There is no freedom in this world apart from the one who made it and sustains it. True freedom can only be found in Christ. We've seen the three consequences of deadly false religion. Next, we're going to see the three life-giving traits of true believers. This is what it looks like to live as children of promise. Starting in verse 5. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. The first trait we see is that this life as children of promise is lived through the Spirit by faith. Faith is not from an individual belief, but it is provided by God's own faithfulness. If we think back to our Matthew 7 text, the the scary text, where their works were disregarded, what was important is that they, they, God did not know them. The Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, draws us. He opens up our eyes to see God as good. And through the Spirit, we can become and live as children of the promise. Listen to what Christ has done for us just a few chapters earlier in Galatians 3.13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged upon a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. The gift of the Spirit is made possible by Jesus laying down his life, by becoming a curse for us, and redeeming us from the curse of the law. And through this Spirit, by faith, we already possess the righteousness of Christ. This is what Christ has accomplished for us. We are not laboring to be made right with God, but we are freed. He's already declared us righteous by the blood of Christ. We are like students who come into class, and the first day the teacher tells us, hey, everyone, you got 100 in my class. You don't need to worry about your grade. Now we just get to study and love the material. What a gift that every blood-brought Christian is empowered by the Spirit to walk in faith. In our own salvation and even in our sanctification, we point and give credit to another, the work of another, trusting that where we would fail, God won't. 
This gives us such freedom to boldly live in this world, knowing that God is always with us and working in us. Second trait we see of true believers is that we are eagerly awaiting the hope of righteousness. Faith is not something that we work for. It is something that we wait for. The Christian resting in the promises of God should have such a joyful anticipation. I recently got to see my sister at an airport. Previously, she was in Zimbabwe for three years. And let me tell you, this was, just, this was no ordinary airport pickup. Y'all think I hug a lot at church. These are like those five-minute hugs where, you know, the crying and stuff. It was, it, was, it was such a sweet time. It was so full of joy to be reunited with our loved ones. Think back to a time where you eagerly anticipated something. A vacation, a marriage, retirement, a wedding, a big event, whatever it might be. And imagine on the day you meet the Lord standing there in judgment and God will go to render a final verdict on your life. And you know you haven't lived perfectly. But it doesn't matter because your life has been submitted to the one who is perfect. And when you are evaluated, you won't be judged by your adherence to the rules, but by judged by the perfection of Jesus that you possess in Christ. Can you imagine? I, I know I am not sufficient, but my way was purchased with the blood of the lamb and I stand in his righteousness before God. And believers, while you can have confidence now that you are perfectly justified by the work of Christ, we also have the hope of a righteousness yet to come. When we meet God, we will be totally sanctified and glorified. If we only had eyes to see the wonders that await us, to be in the presence of God, standing firm as children of the promise, clothed in the righteousness of Christ, this is what all Christians have to look forward to. One thing to notice in this passage, Paul addressed the Galatians individually up until this point in verses 1 through 4. He said you in the prior verses. But in verse 5, he changes. He says we. He changes from singular to corporate. And it's a sweet reminder of the corporate identity that we have in Christ. We are not waiting for the hope of righteousness alone. We have each other. We have the church. And if you are in Christ, the hope of righteousness is certain. And because of this certain hope, you can live free. Christian, eagerly await the hope of righteousness. And Paul concludes this section in verse 6, and, and this would be a shocking statement to many in Paul's audience. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. It appears that Paul just disregards circumcision completely. Those still tied to the law of Moses would have just like thrown their hands up at this. What are you talking about, Paul? But let's take a look, quick look at two accounts of Paul's handling of circumcision. In Galatians chapter 2, Paul doesn't yield for even a moment 
to those who would wish to see Titus circumcised. He fights with all his strength vehemently against it. But yet we see in Acts 16, Paul took Timothy himself to get circumcised. How can this be? Is Paul just inconsistent, picking and choosing what he believes? No, it, it has all to do with the motivation behind the actions. The Judaizers wanted Titus to be circumcised because they believed that by this custom, it was necessary for him to have it so that he would be saved. This was a false gospel they were believing in. And giving in to this demands was only given credibility to it. Paul would not submit to this false belief. But in Timothy's case, the motivation to get circumcised was not to achieve a works-based righteousness, but to better reach a people and to be less of a hindrance to those he was called to minister to. The motivation was not to be an offense. And these two cases prove Paul's statement true, that circumcision isn't the point. The important distinction that is in Christ Jesus. It doesn't matter if you are or aren't, but only faith working through love. These physical markers, they don't matter. It's what is on the inside that counts. God cares about the heart. In man-made work-based religion, there is no such room for this kind of distinction. Just strict adherence. But in Jesus, there is such a grace. On one hand, to refuse something when it would weaken the one true gospel, and on another, to move forward with the same process that you previously opposed in an effort to better love and serve others in Christ. It's pretty amazing the freedom that we have been given in Christ. And in this, we see our third and final trait of the true Christian, the life-giving trait of a true Christian. We see faith working through love. A faith that lacks love is not a genuine faith. Love is a fruit of the Spirit. It's first on the list, y'all. And as we live through the Spirit by faith, we will grow in love. Instead of self-centeredness, this love is marked by an other-centeredness. This love is our faith expressing itself in action. We are saved by grace through faith, but love proceeds from faith. This faith, it just outpours with a love for God and a love for others. And through the Spirit, we are able to love in the same sacrificial manner as Christ. And yes, while we eagerly await the hope of righteousness, He is not done with us yet. We have been put on this earth to be conduits of his love, pointing to the one who first loved us. Brothers and sisters, the price has been paid for our freedom, and it was the highest price that could ever be paid. Please don't go back into what he died to deliver you from. For freedom, Christ has set us free. We read in John 8, whom the Son sets free, he shall be free indeed. Let's pray.